0: and welcome to another episode of the Dragonfire podcast. My name is Nathan Klumbara and I'm a reviewer and blogger at Before We Go blog and I'm joined as always by my co-host James Doolin who is the author of No Heart for a Thief and today we've got a really great episode for you. So first up we have a fantastic interview with Samit Basu, who is the author of The Shanta port, which is coming out on October 3rd from Tor.com Publishing. And then after that interview, James and I are going to be able to do a really cool Dragonfire segment where we're going to focus on some sci-fi topics. We usually focus a lot on fantasy, so we're having a little bit of a sci-fi special episode. So um, thanks for joining us. And yeah, let's get to the interview. And today we have a very special guest, with us, um, author um, Samet Basu, who is the author of the upcoming Jinbot of Shantaport, as well as the award-winning City Inside, which I only have on Kindle, so I don't have a physical copy to show for our YouTube viewers. But um, thank you for joining us. How are
1: you today? Well, thank you for having me. It's a delight to be here. I'm I'm well, I have, um, you know, I'm, it's always deeply weird Kind of releasing a book when you're physically sitting on the other side of the planet and i think it takes all the imagination of a fantasy or science fiction person to even conceptually see how it's possible um but this is this is i've done this a few times now and it's it's always deeply fun so in short i'm good okay <laughs> Well we're glad you could spend
2: some time with us. It's you know, we we both got the chance to read your book a little bit early. It is and for the the listeners and the viewers, we need to we need to plug this. It is coming out uh October 3rd. Is that correct? Yeah. So you're you're like 2 weeks away from the re- release date. How are you feeling about that?
1: I'm feeling the standard amount of tension, but at after some point, and I've been doing this for 20 years. I started just when I was out of college. And after some time, you just get used to the sense of you have no control of what's going to happen. There is no point obsessively checking every corner of the internet to see what's going on. You do it anyway. It's not like I've risen above that um, at all. But but I'm feeling relatively calm in the sense that it's it's been... You know, with the last book, there was a sense of I was, I was in a sense, debuting in the U.S. Um, because the previous books that had been out in the U.S. hadn't got any kind of, you know, in-genre attention. They've done all right. But this time I'm feeling a little more comfortable because there is a sense of having done this process once before. It feels a bit more sane.
2: Yeah. Well, I you know, I, I've been through the process and I know it hasn't been sane on my end, but you've been doing it quite a lot much uh, quite a lot longer than I have so uh hats
1: off to you well thank you and spoiler alert it never gets sane like sometimes it sometimes you give me some hope come on no but 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 I mean sometimes it's insane in a really good way yeah. um but it it's never it, it's never something that you really get used to and it's it's never something that that is super logical even when it's going well so i mean i think i think living where i do embracing the chaos is is part of just what you have to do um and and um, i think working in bollywood has just raised my chaos resistance levels to uh, a point where i appreciate that publishing tries, um but it can it can never match the sheer insanity of working in film but this is not a challenge. This is not a challenge at <laughs> all. I'm happy for it. Well,
2: I mean, I think that gets us off to the right point. We need a proper introduction. You, you're you definitely a, you know, a threat on multiple levels. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do, not only publishing, but you know, in film?
1: Well, I, I do see myself primarily as a writer and a writer of fantasy and science fiction because that's what I've been doing for the last two decades. I started just out of college. I wrote a fantasy novel called The Simicun Prophecies, uh, which came out in India in 2003. Um, this is my seventh, I want to say, genre book for adults. Yeah, it is. Um, And my fourth one in the US. Um, apart from that, I've worked in comics, I've worked in film, where I kind of chanced into a director, screenwriter role after. Well, I say chanced into, but it took me a decade of, of failing at it. Um, And I continued to fail at it, even, even when I had the job. Um, and I've done a bunch of other things, uh, nonfiction writing, children's writing and so on. So I've been more or less a full-time writer for the last two decades. Um, and for some insane reason, I, I, I seem to appear to want to keep doing it. So that's me in short. I've, I've pretty much lived in India all my life. Um, I studied in the UK. Um, I live on the internet a lot and yeah, that's me
2: so how has that experience kind of stepping into direct and directing and doing screenwriting changed your viewpoint on writing and the, and the craft of putting together a book
1: um it's changed it a lot but it's also uh, i think fundamentally every time you step into a new genre or a new medium it teaches you things that cause you to reevaluate your whole process right like um in a way comics writing is is something that is is the full set of writer training because you're learning to you know think spatially and think visuals first in um in a way that you don't have to when you're doing prose um so it really teaches you to examine your writing in a way that just you know just absorbing writing theory and trying to internalize that in your writing process that works, of course, but when you actually have to write a different way, or just really turn your brain around, um, that, that really makes a difference. That teaches you things about, you know, pacing and structure and compression that you wouldn't learn just from just from repeated prose practice. Um, screenwriting, I would say, is much the same. Um with direction, it's a whole other thing because that's about 15 additional channels of chaos, right? And you see uh, you know, you you see exactly. Uh, what the script means to a larger production where there are 17 balls you have to juggle at any given point of time. Um, And it's a humbling experience, really, because uh, at so many times during the shooting of film, people are vaguely aware that a script exists. But it's it's basically live performance and rewriting and handling 20,000 different egos at the same time and someone's missing and, uh, you know, Eighteen people are having a having tantrums at the same time, and you have to prioritize which one you need uh, because the lights also gone. Um. So um. So that has been very educational, just as a human experience. Um. I don't think that it's taught me anything about writing. Uh, <laughs> Your characters don't
2: act up the same way.
1: No. Oh my god. Uh, so you know what what. Uh. While it's nice to feel like I have. I work in 15 directions at the same time. I think if one is honest about it, um, what has happened a lot is that I worked in publishing until I'm broke. Then I've gone to other fields and returned to publishing when I'm just frustrated with how those other fields work, you know? Um, so while on the bright side, I can say, you know, I learned so many different things at the same time. It's like all every, you know, the the act of of, of, of writing or actually creating in any form. Um, is so rewarding in itself. And it's such a joy to experience things as a creator or as a, I don't want to say consumer, but as a reader or listener or, you know, the audience in whatever way. Uh, but then the moment you then try to run this through the meat grinder of a creative industry in any form, um, that's when the craziness sets in, right? Yeah. Um, so, and it's not, I mean, working full-time as a writer out of India is not something that people do. Um, so in, in many of these situations, it's, it's been about just trying to find ways to keep doing this when systems don't exist and infrastructure don't exist. And that actually informs my books a lot because in, in most of my books, the characters are just bouncing around in a world that doesn't work trying to make sense of it. So I think, I think that, that goes into it. Definitely.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's jump into your book. So, uh, Jinba is essentially a uh, sci-fi space opera retelling of Aladdin um, and these kinds of modern retellings of myths, legends, fairy tales, fables, whatever, have been really popular in publishing recently. Um, why did you decide to do a retelling of the story of Aladdin?
1: Um, I had been wanting to do a retelling for a while, as in it was on the list of things to do for the the exact reason you mentioned the sense that these things seem to be really working now. And um, there's a lot of there's a lot of stories that haven't been done because ultimately it always kind of boils down to the stories that are familiar. You know, Um, I think there's a broad awareness of, say, the Greek and Roman myths um, of fairy tales and of things like, you know, King Arthur legends where where there is this assumption of familiarity. Anywhere in the world, which is reasonable, and these stories keep getting retold. Um, and the challenge with and you know one of the things that you're supposed to do as as an Indian writer, um, and when I say supposed to do it, I mean is one of the things that publishing will allow you to do as an Indian writer is kind of retell Indian mythology, but that's not that's not essentially the same thing as fantasy or science fiction because um. It's it's active religion in India, um, you know, as opposed to something that is much more a classical text that people don't have strong emotional feelings about. And it's a country that's in so much churn that... And the, uh, the mythological icons of mainstream India have been co-opted into narratives of immensely disturbing kind of social violence. So I kind of feel uncomfortable about that. So I was looking for a story that... Um, I thought everyone anywhere in the world would be familiar with, um, but that I also had a certain emotional connection to. So Aladdin and the The Thousand One Nights in general are um, stories that I had first experienced as a child growing up in Bengali, because uh, you know, uh, in each language there are different kind of global channels of communication that don't always relate to. Uh, English publishing, which is broadly uh, US-centric, which used to be kind of US and UK-centric, I think, two decades ago, more than it is now, where it's much more, the US is the primary source of publishing in the world. Um, So Aladdin was a story that I'd always, among a set of Arabian Nights uh, fables that I'd always really liked. And this was, of course, I think the early 90s was when the Disney um, Aladdin came out, 90 or 91. And that was, I think, the first animated movie I saw in a theater. And it was also the first animated movie where, vaguely speaking, the characters looked a bit like me. And um, so I read more about Aladdin. And I found out that it kind of isn't a Thousand and One Night story. As in, it was added on to the, trans- the French translation of the fables by a Syrian Syrian Christian guy who I don't want to say he was a hustler. But it just sounds like he was like it was it, it, it was he added the story to the collection and that's why it's kind of different from all the other uh stories in the collection which are much more rooted in which are much more similar to each other culturally whereas uh and then when you add the the disneyfication of it then it then Aladdin becomes this kind of homeless orientalist fable um which uh, because it's the it, even in the Thousand One Nights, it's set in China. Um, everyone has vaguely Muslim-sounding names. Um, it makes no sense, and that's just the kind of story I like because um, this kind of loose orientalist. Um, you know, we take we take in images and story fragments from everywhere, and then we just make something up. Um, that sounds like modern production to me. Um, so so I got very into that, uh, especially because I had this emotional connection with the story from my childhood. Um, and because it didn't work. Like I did not like the wishes that Aladdin made, uh, whether in the original fable where it wasn't three wishes, where he was just doing stuff. Um, and all of it was quite horrible if you looked at it. If you looked at the situation where he was from, he was quite a sociopath. And if you strip away the beautiful music and the cute imagery of the Disney films, he's quite a sociopath in that as well. So I wanted to look at an Aladdin who was in a city that needed changing, that needed kind of, you know, social justice from the ground up. And not an Aladdin who was just, okay, I want, you know, to be a famous celebrity and trick the lovely innocent princess into a relationship with me and um, perform extremely questionable decisions about setting a wild magical power free uh, minutes after seeing how dangerous that could be in the final <laughs> action sequence so I, this this needed fixing right so um so yeah so that's where this book came from um i decided to take this roaming orientalist fable and set it in a far future version of the city that I grew up in which is Kolkata um, in the east of India um, and yeah that's that was a very long and rambling answer I'm sorry but that, that, that's, no. that it was is, a very okay, entertaining answer from.
2: yeah I, <laughs> thanks. I, I like the the background that you're able to give and uh, I guess I haven't thought of Aladdin as a sociopath before but um, it's it's an interesting analysis to think about him uh, in because that, he's so cute, and...
1: it's because he's cute, and you're more distracted by the fact that the cartoon version doesn't have nipples, and then you don't realize <laughs> that his agenda, his agenda is not a good one.
2: <laughs> yeah, and and the singing, of course, the singing,
1: yeah. which Why I'm going to complain. There are no songs Hollywood? in your book. There is no singing. What happened? I'm I'm sorry about that. I mean, I I would have put it in if I couldn't. <laughs>
2: <laughs> not
1: even a, a rap number like
2: the the latest version of aladdin
1: i'm yeah i am i'm my uh i could not trick myself into believing i had any rapping abilities um even in my imagination that's why that doesn't exist that's a fair answer um i i think one of the
2: things that's really interesting a thing uh, about your story is is the the point of view you chose so essentially and and this is not spoiler for anybody it's uh it's it's told from the perspective of this really advanced drone bot that that kind of follows your main characters around and so it has this kind of outside perspective but at the same time it's sentient so it has thoughts of its own um why did you choose to use that method of storytelling to to use that point of view um
1: yeah i wanted to use uh i wanted to i wanted the point of view in terms of observing the characters to be as neutral as possible so i wanted to uh, start off with uh, start off with an observing point where um the the central character could not you could not understand what the central character was up to you could just observe their actions because uh, moku who is the which is the name of the the character you refer to which is a, a story bot who can read the who can read the minds of other bots and who thinks he can understand humans perfectly by observing their body language and you know just analyzing their tone and everything like that um and i wanted to look at it as you know especially when we're looking at stories where doesn't matter what part of the world you're from, you're looking at a different culture, right? Um, And you're trying to apply um, techniques of understanding and and seeing through that character's eyes, which you can only really bring from your own context. Um, And I wanted the person doing that to be someone who did not have context, but who had confidence, you know? and um, because a lot of the story was about you know what are the lines between a, a human active protagonist and a non human inactive protagonist in a city where a lot of the uh, most of the people are just seen as passive subjects by the people in charge right um and this is always an issue when you're telling stories in the supposed east um so I wanted to, to have this point of view character who could who were looking at these two different siblings, where he could observe the human um, but not really understand her. And he was completely reading the thoughts of the other protagonist, which is Badur the Monkey Bot, who is Lena's brother. Um, which of course changes down the line because there is a sense of because you know, when we're when we're engaging with any text, um, I always find it very interesting how increasingly now um, writers don't trust readers to figure out what's going on and just tell them all the time what the character is thinking and feeling and you know what their goals are just really large font underlined laying it down in every chapter and I see why that happens and uh, but it's also the kind of thing where you don't assume that the reader can pick it up Um, so I wanted to play with with two very different ways of of dealing with the same situation, um, and I had vague thoughts when I started off, um, the whole thing being a bit like a mockumentary. Okay. Um, but I decided that there were enough elements in the story for me to not add an additional layer of complexity. Um, so I didn't. So I didn't go with a mockumentary in the end. But yeah, but that, that's why. That's why, I mean, I wanted him to be able to literally fly between the two main characters. And I wanted their stories to feel a little different because one was human and he couldn't understand her and one was a bot and he could initially understand everything about and it.
2: And knowing that you work in film, it almost felt like you were like pointing the camera at these characters rather than being in their head. Um, And it was, that's... So that, I I don't know if that's what you're going for in a, in a way, but I I think it's it's interesting that to know your background and and to see that perspective.
1: No, absolutely. No, you 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 know you've outlined it in a sentence much better than I did in the last few minutes. It feels like um, I I was I was pointing <laughs> the camera at them literally because I mean he was Moku was my camera, um and uh, I wanted it to be I wanted. It to in in one case to gradually understand the character, and with the other to absolutely be in his head, uh, yeah. because he had he had feelings about a lot of things that also helped with the world building.
2: Um, and I think that's a it, that kind of brings uh, me to another question I had about kind of one of the themes of this book. I think is what is personhood, yeah, and what is family, and you you are kind of in these characters' heads, one being a a, a robot, a, a a automaton, um a monkey, and an, another another being like this storytelling bot, and another being a human. And they first of all, they call each other family, um, even though one is made and one is not. And so I was interested what is that analogous to something in this real world that you're trying to dig into is that a theme that you're trying to explore uh through this uh this other telling of of you know bots and 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 faraway lands or are you what what is it you're trying to communicate through that
1: right well i mean it, it kind of starts with both the fable of aladdin and the setting where i'm putting the story right with With the Fable of Aladdin itself and this idea where you use wishes to control the reality that you're in, right? One of the most troubling things that I found when I was dealing with this just as a storyteller and trying to feel feel sympathy and engagement and warmth for the characters that I was dealing with is that this is a horrifying power. Yeah. So, you know, so so that was where I started thinking about, you know, who has agency in the story? Who's whose thoughts can we deliberately control and manipulate? What large sections of the population will just have to obey us if we if we give them orders? And that was really why it turned into, um, it. Uh, why it became of our future uh, retailing instead of a fantasy retailing. Because um, if you're looking at, at a society where you have the ability to control the population literally, and um, there are various strata of society where you have varying degrees of control over them. Um, what rights do people have? And if you can control people, and if it's it's and if there's a lot of technology, so even the humans are kind of technologically enhanced depending on their social status right so so that that's why that's why the box came into the story at all and it became a story about well one of the aspects of the story became about personhood and agency who has what rights in a in in a situation like this who's in control of these rights what rights can you just change with the flip of a switch or a delivered instruction and so yeah so that's that's where that came from
0: yes yeah um speaking of kind of robots and things. This book is coming out in a time of great kind of social unrest and upheaval and and worry because of things like ChatGPT and other kinds of artificial intelligence. Um, While working on this book, did you do any kinds of research into AI technologies and kind of what's actually possible? Or did you just like, let your imagination run wild about what potential AI might be in the future?
1: Um, i I had huge mounds of unused research left over from my last book, which was about you know near future India. and And so, yeah, so there was a certain amount of research into AI and which which led me to the premise that you know, the humans and the people in power in this world did not like AI and did not like robots, which I thought which I think is going to just be a thing going forward, even as industries build more advanced AI is, whatever they're capable of. Um people are not gonna like them. Um, I will I wouldn't like them in their place. Um so I think the the way that the the present-day, very reasonable dislike of AI um affected the book was that one, it led me to make everyone a cyborg. So even Balor, I'm calling him a bot because he's built, but his cultural programming and his active dna has meat bits you know which is interesting to me um at what point does uh, either an organic person with technology augments or a built person with fleshy bits that doesn't understand where everyone has um vast organic let's say emotions um, that come from the same cultural frameworks of consumption because because Bader has has become the person he is through parental training, consuming pop culture like Murbot um, and living in a city where everyone goes through the same things. So, I mean, and so that that that's a line that I find very interesting because, you know, where do we start? I mean, we're already at the point in the real world where, mm-hmm the technological augments we use to make our life supposedly easier are both allowing, you know, sinister forces to kind of control our behavior and making our life more convenient. Um, So at some point, these augments are going to move on and then into our bodies. Um, So there's there's one whole, you know, bundle of arguments proceeding from there. And on the other, the, the absolutely robotic things are going to be trained on human uh, behavior patterns and carry human flaws and human biases. So so yeah, so as a person, I dislike AI. So the way that that um, went into the book was that everyone in the book dislikes AI and AI often dislikes itself.
0: Interesting. Yeah, you're, this book is different than your previous book, The City Inside, because The City Inside was much more like near future right? Like it was much, I I don't want to say it was more grounded, but most, I guess, literally and figuratively, it was more grounded. Um, How was writing Jinba, which is set in a much more far future space opera style, different than the city inside? Was it more difficult or did it allow you to explore things that you weren't able in a more near
1: future setting? Oh, um, the difference was that I really enjoyed writing Jinbar, you know, uh, which is much more. Um, so I still see myself fundamentally as a fantasy writer um, and really enjoying the, the let's say, less constrained chaos that fantasy allows you to create. So The City side was very different from anything else I've written. And all my books tend to be quite different from one another. But um, with The City Inside, I think it was very different because... I'm talking about so many real world issues and it was important to foreground those issues. Um, so plot took a backseat. seat. Um, characters were very carefully based on real people that I knew um, and there was less running wild in the sense that when you're talking about so many grim things, you can't really go for absolute comedy or just you know embrace the ridiculousness of the whole thing. Um, so with Jinbot, I had much more fun because yes, I, there is a fair amount of, of uh, space given to climate change and oligarchy and colonialism and personhood and you know serious themes uh, with single capital letters. But the you know my favorite thing about fantasy or sci-fi for that matter is that it allows you to embrace the bad shit. Um, yeah. So it was very nice after really kind of trying to be very contained and very serious and very, um, I must mention this aspect of society today um, in in, uh, City Inside to say, okay, I'm going to have characters who are nuts. I'm going to have a big plot with twists. I'm going to have really strange creatures all over the place and action scenes and, you know, running around and drones and, you know, all all the nuts stuff that is in Jinbot. So yeah, so Jinbot is, is more how I would normally write, I want to say. And it certainly um, and I and I it was so nice coming back to that. Uh, because City Inside was also a book where I felt like I needed to write it because of the state that my is in. Um Jinbot has no such important feelings. It's like I want to have fun with the book again, was my a guiding uh, light going into it so you
2: want to write more giant g- garbage collecting melee machines
1: always always <laughs> uh, it was it was deeply frustrating to me that I couldn't put any of those into the city inside without completely you know taking the limelight away from important things that needed our attention and thought um no I mean you know the as a, as an Indian or South Asian writer specifically there's fantasy and sci-fi are not on the list of things you're supposed to write um, and if one is going to do that anyway and and uh, you know immediately kind of fall outside whatever few cultural institutions are there to support writing and literature and all its forms then one might as well go all the way A uh, garbage kaiju is important and it's representation <laughs> it, I mean it, and and with you
2: saying that I'm you know we're we're seeing um kind of an influx of new southeastern writers hitting the scene and making kind of a big splash you have Sons of Darkness the Phoenix King the First Binding all kind of making a splash especially in at, at least in the US context from what we're seeing um what do you think that means for the future of fantasy and science fiction in India?
1: Um, the future of fantasy and science fiction in India is not very bright at this point of time because our uh, publishing is kind of going into a decline because of larger social and political forces. So um, the the impact that, that South Asian writers have been having in the US and the UK it's, it's delightful to me as someone who's wanted to see this sort of thing for two decades and, you know, and, and, and I've been around for most of it slowly growing. Um, but in India, it doesn't really, at this point, it doesn't really make a difference. Maybe, maybe when things change socially, there'll be an influx, but, um, but yeah, India is not a good place for any kind of free running imagination right now, but just, you know, mm-hmm. as uh, just watching uh, all the writers you mentioned, plus people like Padra uh, Chandra Sek- Sekera from Sri Lanka, uh, Lavanya Lachmanaran, who also had a book out this year. Which I mean, these are just lovely books, all of them. And I think what what is what is super interesting to me about them is well, many things actually. But but one is that they're all very different from one another, um, because they're coming at a time where fantasy, like science fiction, is just it's moving in eighty different directions at the same time, all at yeah. once, right? And and every now and then you know every people try to do trend analysis of what's happening and this genre is hot and that kind of book is hot and there are always two or three things every year but actually no one knows what's happening it's like an amoeba that, that that's moving in in a lot of directions and you can only analyze post fact it's impossible to predict where it's coming from and it's nice to see that that you know that none of these writers are really bound by their ethnicity to retell the same sort of story in the way that when uh, when south asian literature broke out in litpic in the 90s um one very legitimate criticism you could you could make about all those books is that they were pretty similar in the themes that they addressed which was the, which was what western publishing wanted to read from south asia at this time but we now live in a bizarre world where you know no one even knows how publishing works so, all the writers you mentioned—they've all come up in different ways because there's no yeah. there's no single institution through which uh people are kind of filtered and gatekept and so on. So, and personally speaking, apart from just loving that this is happening, it's been so the last twenty years, right? So twenty years ago, when I submitted my first novel to publishers outside India, um, there was this blanket refusal to even accept that Indians could write this sort of book. So like this is not the kind of book we expect from Indian writers. We don't know what the Indian audience is. No one is asking you to know what the Indian audience is, right? If you like the book. So so I I would get these reactions saying, okay, we like your book, but we have no idea how to sell it because nothing like it has been done before. Mm -hmm. And to my very young, uninformed perspective, that was the point. You know, surely someone, if you like a book and it's not been done before, is that not a good thing and then the last two decades have been about understanding how it's not you know so so a decade or so ago when i first kind of broke through into the uk and the us and it was titan books which was then a small publisher it's much bigger now um it was a lovely experience to work with them because um again it, things are just more chaotic over here um so and if you cut forward another decade and you see I don't know. There are, I know of, I can immediately think of 10, 20, 30 South Asian writers. Um, some of whom are, who some of whom live in the subcontinent, but the majority of whom actually live in the in the West, in the US and the UK, who are doing fascinating work in a hundred different traditions at the same time. And I like that. I mean, I, I like that we're kind of assembling from just different directions at the same time. Uh, what, what makes it difficult though, is that if you, if you, stick us all together in the same you know this the skin tone based uh group panel there's very little we have in common to talk about <laughs> because our works are wildly different so it's good that it's good that uh, Ronnie's book and Gaurav's book and Abarna's book are coming out in the same year because they still have sort of thematic overlaps um but you know Kritika's book which, which, which was also out this year we we had her on the channel as well yeah yeah, yeah, I I I haven't heard that one yet, but I saw her link there. But her book is lovely, but it's not the same. It, it's not. No. They're not informed by the same uh, backgrounds at all, and I think that's great.
2: And so, given all that chaos uh, that that you're talking about, and the the wild different directions that fantasy and sci-fi are going, are there is there anything that's kind of off limits for you in terms of what you want to get into? do you consider grimdark an option in the future do you consider different possibilities of you know wild portal fantasies or is there anything that you don't think is is within what you would want to write
1: um i don't know see the thing is again this is possibly generational but i don't think in genre terms in particular because when i was growing up we did not have bookstores locally that were divided by genre. That was the thing that that started happening in India when I was in my twenties, so to speak. Right. So, um, so I, so the whole conversation about you know subgenres and your grimdark and and you know steampunk was trending a while ago. Various other punks have come and gone. Um, cyberpunk has resurfaced and so on. So these are mostly things that I find out after the book is written. Um. So to answer your question, no, there is absolutely no genre that I wouldn't feel like um, trying out. But having said that, there, um, when when I speak to publishers, publishers have a better sense of the kind of audience that each genre has. So, mm-hmm. what, and it's not something that they can that it's that it's possibly safe for them to articulate because no one likes being put into a category as a writer or a reader. But you get these vibes like, okay, maybe the audience of X subgenre isn't where you want to go right now, right? And these are not conversations that they can they can either where they can either actually tell you, you know, don't write this genre; the audience will not like you as a human, um, because <laughs> it's probably not true, right? If you if 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 they if they tried a bunch of books from various other people in in those genres, it probably work out fine, you know, because these uh, but. But they don't want to because because publishing is a risk-averse industry. Um, yeah. But from a creative point of view, I think all of these are fascinating. Uh, whenever whenever I uh, you know whenever I, I read across genres, and when I when I when I, whenever I read something that's exciting in any genre, of course my immediate oh I gotta do one of those. Um, I have to do one of those right now. It'll only take me at least a year, probably two, to do it. So I should think before jumping into this relationship, but that's not how my reader, reader-to-writer transition brain works. Um, so whenever I read all these books, I go, "Aha! Yeah. This is what I want to do next." Um, so yeah. So currently, I'm working on what I suspect will turn out to be a portal fantasy book. Okay. Um, but when I'm reading Grimdark, I'm like I want to do Grimdark. But you give me any. I mean, I was just reading Travis um, Baldry's book, and I'm like I want to do one of these. So but that's so that's that's my that's my internal pre-decision choice problem.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know if Grimdark, cozy fantasy go together.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I want to write both. <laughs> <laughs> the cozy fantasy grim, that
2: tackles dark. oppression and colonialism. <laughs>
1: yeah. I don't want to write a cozy grimdark. I don't think that could work.
2: But yeah. yeah. But it's it's interesting because I, I don't see many at least larger name authors who who seem to either want to or are allowed to write in many different subgenres. So you 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 do have your your Neil Gaimans who kind of stick out as somebody who's written in a lot of different subgenres and a lot of different tones. But a lot of authors feel streamlined into one kind of tone. Uh, do you feel like you've been able to kind of express yourself in many different tones throughout your career?
1: Yeah, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain freedom when no one knows what to do with you. Um, In the sense that if, so, so one thing that happens, I think, is that if you're writing in a genre where it's fairly easy to predict what will happen, uh, what could happen to your book, like um, in, in many spaces, um, an editor or anyone could really look at your book and say, okay, this could sell X number of copies. So this is how we market it. This is the kind of cover we put on it. Um, This is exactly how the whole production process goes. So in those situations, the challenge for the writer becomes, you know, how do I get better at my craft? How do I get marginally better at promotions or whatever it is? How do I organize my time better? This is one Mm -hmm. layer of writer problem. But I think I'm just used to, over the last two decades, no one really knowing where I would fit. Um, And while there's plenty of, I mean, one could always complain about that, right? Like pretty much every field I work in no one is exactly sure what to do with me, but they're like, all right, come in and do your thing and just shut up. Um, but that, so there's a certain freedom that that gives you as well. Yeah. So let's say, you know, if at some magical point of time, um, one of my books becomes a raging bestseller in the US or something like that, right? At that point of time, there'll certainly be more pressure on me to stick to the genre that I'm in because that's the point at which finally, you know, okay, you have found your audience. Mm -hmm. Um, But as long as, as long as I'm not one of the authors getting those massive book deals, um, the risk is actually less in the sense that, all right, let's, let's, he wants to do something else that's strange. Let's let him, because we're not putting millions of dollars on this. So, um, so, so that freedom is something actually uh, that I've, i've learned to, to take positively when i'm moving across both genres and media in the sense that if they don't know what to do with you then there is a certain freedom to be embraced in that um but i mean i was i was lucky in the sense that my first my first novel was actually a bestseller in india um and because at the time i was not very genre aware the next book i was i was planning was actually at that point it was not a fantasy novel it was uh, i think it was it was possibly a coming of age mystery something i don't even remember um and then my publisher said no write a sequel for the book that you just wrote and that you know has somehow managed to hit number one so because that's what you have to do next so i look forward to having the same problem in other parts of the world because that means i'm earning really well um but until such time i i find that just trying new things uh helps keep my uh my love for writing a life because there especially if you do it full time it just it can become such a grind you know i mean and just, just i should write i don't know 5000 more words this week i need to care what those 5000 words are um yeah. and and moving into into new genres and moving into new media helps keep it exciting because you're always learning it's it's nice to feel that you know after two decades I don't Well, I mean, it's nice for me I hope it's nice for readers it's nice to feel like I don't really know anything about what I'm doing um because that 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 means every time I write a book I change my process a little bit um I look forward to making so much money that I have to stop and just repeat myself over and over again um uh, but it's it's I'll not find until for that point you.
0: as well yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, so um,
0: after you write your portal fantasy, your grimdark fantasy, and your cozy fantasy, would you ever think about maybe returning to like the universe of Jinbot? Because it's a big story, but it's also a relatively contained story. And there's a lot of talk about like a much larger universe out there. Would you ever return to it and explore something else in this
1: world? Oh yeah, I'd love to return to that right away. Um, I'm I'm very happy to, like, I, I, I know what the next two books in in this universe would be well when i say i know i know a few paragraphs worth of it um but also i you know i i want to make sure just from a pragmatic point of view that if i'm doing a series um i want to make sure that i know the audience is there and what it wants um because i've had the experience of writing series before without much publisher support and that can be a pretty depressing experience, and I'm talking about my first few books in India. Um, and it was it was not like the publisher wasn't supportive. It was just that fantasy didn't exist as genre in India, and they didn't know how to find an audience or how to support books. Um, but it can get pretty bleak because you you commit years of your life to doing this, um, and it's a repetition of the same experience. And you know, writing novels is such a lonely experience. Um. And when the self doubt, I mean, there's always a healthy amount of self doubt, I think. But um, when it's amplified by years of kind of going deeper and deeper in the same tunnel, um, then it can get it can get quite lonely and depressing. So, um, so it, so pretty much, I mean, apart from the city inside, pretty much any book I've written, I've always kind of left a few, you know, potholes and cave openings and windows in case I want to jump through them and just go further into it. So yeah, so um. When I now say that I want to write a portal fantasy and a grimdark fantasy and a cozy fantasy, that could change next week.
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> lots of yeah. freedom, lots of open, open yeah. windows.
0: Are your other are your other ideas for the Jinbot universe also retellings of others? No, um, okay, they would be completely original.
1: N- not really, in the sense that I know I know what the meat of the like what the central through line of those plots would be and if i can find a retelling that also works with those i'll i'll stick that on as well but that's not a primary goal in the sense that uh, i feel like if you know when you're going into the second book of anything um you're not there for anything beyond at most a, a real love for the characters and desire to live in the world with them and maybe a central burning question of what happens next um so i don't want to so if i if i so I'm gonna if I do that sequel, I'm gonna figure out what the story is first, and then if there's a fable that ties on to that reasonably easily, I'll I'll layer that on as well. But that's not a fundamental goal. Like it would be, uh, what happens to these people?
2: Very cool. I I think that I hope that your 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 book finds an audience here and and in the UK and worldwide. I hope that you find a lot of success with it. It was a lot of fun. Um, I think that you did some really interesting things with at least what we know of, uh, the Aladdin story, you know, from, from Disney and, and that kind of thing. Uh, many of us are aware of that, uh, because of Disney, but I think you did a lot of really cool things in it. So I, I hope that that hits with audiences. Um, but as as you have said, let's like it's not up to you. It's up to the the to the fates, I guess. Right? Yeah. Thank um, you.
1: Thank you so much. And the same and the same with your next book.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank
1: Do you, you know guys. what that is? Do you want to?
2: Um. Well, my my next book is out on October twenty fourth. It's a it's oh, a sequel nice. to my first book. Oh, um, So yeah, I'm I'm excited for it. But um, it's. You know indie scale is a little bit different so um let's let's hope that it finds a a a readership as well but I you know I I hope that you uh launch your way to the top of some bestseller lists over here as well
1: um thank you I hope so too (laughs) and indie is again I've always wanted to go indie I'm just terrified of 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 how much work it is
2: it's uh, a lot of work I mean well the the three authors that we had talked about before uh ronnie um I, I, i'm forgetting the author's name of uh phoenix king and aburna and 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 sons of and darkness
1: Gaurav.
2: they the, grew up yeah they all started in indie i think uh ronnie not not in this not this book but ronnie started with some urban fiction yeah. uh, urban fantasies and then uh then the other two were originally published indie so it's interesting to see what's happening with that as well
1: yeah, I mean, for me, it's because I'm not because I'm on the other side of the planet, and there are no cons and networks and kind of mm-hmm. trustable info sources of how to go about it, and no one's really done it here. It's just something I I I, I look on from afar with wonder, and think yeah. it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of extra work. Yeah.
2: Well, um, I want to thank you for spending your time with us. And Nathan, did you have? Any last burning questions? don't think so. I think we
0: hit everything. Uh, yeah, so thank you for joining us. So just to plug the book again, it's the Jim Bader port. It's coming out from tour.com on October 3rd. So make sure that you pre-order it or pick it up. So Zaman, thank you again for joining us on the Dragon Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I just had a lovely time.
2: I, I had such a great time listening to you. Uh you have you have a lot of great stories and I'm I'm interested to have you back. Anytime. All right. Thank you for listening to that amazing interview with Samet Basu. Uh, we really loved his book. The oh gosh, I'm missing the title. Um the Jinbot of Shant. Yeah. What? Shantaport. the Jimbot of Chandipur. Yeah, I've been just calling it Jimbot
0: the whole. If you have, I just okay through the whole interview. I just called it Jimbot. So if you just want to be like, and we kind okay. of have hit the book enough, I think that if you just say, yeah, okay. um, his upcoming, you know, his upcoming book,
2: I think it's good enough. Yeah. All right. I'll, do you want to restart or should I just you know just cut it off? Just go just cut it off at this point. Okay. It's easier to get your files. Okay. Thank you all for sticking around and listening to our amazing interview with Samat Besou. We're really excited for his book on October 3rd. And without further ado, we'd love to get to Dragonfire. We're going to hit some sci-fi topics and really get into it. So, Nathan, you want to put some time on the clock? Yeah. All right. So it's been a while since it's just been the two of us. Uh, Let's see what we can get into. And this is a softball question. So what sci-fi invention of convenience, convenience, so it can't be like some wild thing that's going to change the world, uh, would you like the most? Yeah. Um, For me, it's any sci-fi movie, TV show, book, or
0: whatever, where like the people just like get like food automatically. Like they just put in like nothing, like powder, and then it just like magically turns into like a a five-course meal because I hate... I, I hate cooking, especially like daily cooking, but also I just don't want to eat leftovers all the time. So I think for me, it would definitely be like a the magic food thing um, yeah. that you see in Sci-Fi Things. That would be like the smallest convenience that would just like make my life infinitely better.
2: So it's interesting because I chose the a similar thing, but immediately when you started talking, I, my mind just went to Demolition Man and... <laughs> Taco Bell being like the food of choice of the future. Yeah. <laughs> um and it has nothing to do with what you just said but for some reason like Taco Bell high quality just kind of uh snuck into my mind but I chose the uh the replicator from Star Trek. Um mm. and not only is it like food but it also can do like machine parts and things like that. So uh very very sustainable choices. Awesome.
0: All right. So for our next question, it is um, if you could have time travel,
2: teleportation, or faster than light travel, which would you choose? And I I apologize for being redundant in this question. I think it's like the exact same as the last question, just a little bit more specific and yeah. a little bit more grand. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I think... I'm not interested in time travel. I think going back in time uh, outside of some very specific instances is going to be uh, disastrous. Uh, Going forward in time, I am not positive about what this future is going to hold. I think it's going to be pretty disastrous as well. So given my poor outlook on the world, uh, that's off limits. Faster than light travel, Sounds cool, but I, I really have no interest in being on a, a spaceship or or leaving. I don't like flying long distances on an airplane. So I'm I'm not interested in in going outer space. So I'm gonna go teleportation. I would love to be able to travel the world in an instant. Uh that's what I'm going with.
0: Yeah. I had to think about this one. Um, uh, because I think like job wise as an archaeologist, time travel will make my job infinitely easier. Uh <laughs> You can but be the Indiana would, Jones of time travel. Yeah, yeah, I think, like, but I think I think I would go with teleportation because, like, I don't know what I would use faster than, light like travel for. Like, right now, I don't even like leaving my house most of the time, so, like, where am I going? Like, why do I even <laughs> need that for? And so, like, teleportation, like, I could, like, teleport from, like, my living room into the kitchen and then back again. Uh, like, that would be, like, super easy. Like, I mean, like, I guess like all three of these, I don't really have a use for. I'm I'm kind of too boring (laughs) to make. You're just (laughs) trying to
2: eliminate walking. Yeah, I guess that's that's at the end of the day. (laughs) Okay, that that's an interesting answer. Uh, Yeah. Well, never getting your steps in. Oh, no. Yeah. See,
0: so yeah, I guess like, I think for me, it's like, A lot of sci-fi inventions I just wouldn't find particularly useful for for my boring um, 70-year-old in a younger person's body kind of thing
2: that I've got going on. To be fair, I think that that's what a lot of people would use these conveniences for, is like really minor things that wouldn't change their lives. I like to think that, like Omni-Man, I would like fly to Italy and, and get a bottle of wine for dinner. Like, yeah. Probably not. Like I probably wouldn't just be spending lunch in Japan at the best sushi restaurant. I'd probably just like, okay, I don't have to take the train into work anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which Cause is probably I highly a bad use of that technology.
0: Cause I'm not like, even if I had the power flight, I'm not going to Italy for a bottle of wine. Like I won't even drive down the street to the local store to get a bottle of wine. Like, you know, <laughs> like I it would it would be too much of a convenience even if I had the power of light.
2: So at, at the very least, we are safe from alcoholism because of our, our laziness <laughs> and <laughs> our ineptitude. <laughs> um so that's that's one thing that I'll take from that positively. Or, All right. Uh, the next one. Uh also, a, a negative framed question: What franchise would you stop from making any more movies or TV shows?
0: Um, ooh, uh, I mean, I think there's like the obvious ones, like DC. Uh, but it's like just give up the ghost at this point. Um, but it related to that, I'd probably say Marvel. I just don't think like I don't think the MCU is going anywhere. I don't think it's really had a point in a while um I'm kind of burnt out by it it seems like the people behind the scenes are burnt out by Mm -hmm. it um so I would probably go with with
2: those to be completely honest see with Marvel I think that there's room they're just not taking any chances and they don't want to like they could make some really cool different genre movies and bend things and like do interesting things with those characters that they just choose not to um so I think there's a chance for something interesting what I don't think has a chance for something interesting is James Bond Hmm. I like I have not seen a very interesting Bond movie in a very long time um and they're not interested in doing anything with the character that's very new i mean i think daniel craig was a bit of a departure from what they used to do for a movie and then they got right back into the same kind of like let's let's have a laser that kills the world off kind of thing yeah um, and it just it forgets that it can do different things and so i'm done with james bond i'm, I'm fine with never having another movie or anything around that property
0: Yeah, I was reading something a while ago about all the conflicts around James Bond right now because I guess like Amazon technically owns it, but it's also owned by like a private family trust. So like corporate wise, Amazon controls it, but the family owns it creatively, and the two of them have like very different viewpoints about what to do with it moving forward.
2: Well, good, so it doesn't have to move forward.
0: Yeah, I don't, I yeah, I don't know what's going on with that, but yeah, I yeah, I feel like there's just like. At this point, James Bond is just like almost become the generic spy genre that it birthed.
2: Yeah. Uh, and, and there are so many other versions of that that are better. Like, I I think, and it's it's not the same kind of genre, but I think Luther does a better job of that, like, really gritty kind of, detective noir or de- not not noir but detectives kind of story that it it kind of digs you into this this world that seems like the stakes are far above beyond the main character uh there are a lot of things like that that do it better
0: yeah and I think James Bond in the modern world it's just also hard to make it work where like you can't just keep making like the stereotypical eastern European or the brown person the villain and I don't think they've can quite figure it out how to not
2: do that, you know, for a sustained time. Yeah. So It also lost its campiness, which I think was part of the fun of the old movies. Yeah, the like, 60s-ness of it all. Yes. Sean <laughs> yeah. Connery just jetpacking off in this really ridiculous way. Yeah. All right. Well, now
0: that we've had uh, a question of negativity, Uh, Let's have another positive question. So what's a character that stuck with you over the years and what makes them stick?
2: So I'm going to skip genre altogether and go for bigger from native son. Um, I think, and for those of you who haven't read bigger or, or haven't read native son by Richard Wright, please do. Um, Bigger was the first character, the first main character I was introduced to, where you're reading from his POV, and he's he's an objectively bad person throughout most of the book. And but you're also forced to reconcile the horrible things he does with the racism that he faces, and forced to see the humanity in him even as he does these horribly violent things to people inside and outside of his community. And so I think just, I think he's a character that will always stick with me. Yeah. um,
0: I feel like mine is so stereotypical for us because like my brain kept going back to Fitz from like Robin Hobb, <laughs> which I feel like that's all we talk about. But like, seriously, like I think that's a character that yeah. um, I just can't get out of my head. And I think it's because we do spend a lot of time in Fitz's head and Fitz is also really, really complex. Um, I think that we get to experience him over nearly his entire lifespan. Um, Those books are also quite chunky after the first one or two of them. And I think when you just spend that much time with such a complex character, through the highs and the lows and them going through it and them also being kind of a dumbass, And you just like, they just stick with you. And I don't know if I've ever had a character that did that, um, mm. especially as most main characters that you would spend that much time with tend to be relatively blank canvases that yeah. I think that authors want to use as like an insert for the reader and yeah. I don't think Robin Hobb does that um, at all with how Fitz is presented in that book. And so I think he comes across really 3D and
2: fully realized in a way that most other main characters don't. I mean, you, you could have used this time to say Kalo, but you decided not to. And I'm going to take that yeah. as a personal front.
0: Yeah. Personal. I mean, I, I could have, <laughs> but I didn't. And.
2: <laughs> Fine, be that way. All right. We'll go on to the next question then. Yeah. Um. This is your hostile edition of Dragon Fire. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so what is your favorite robot character from any book, TV show, or movie? Um, I went with
0: um number six from Battlestar Galactica, the reimagined okay. one. Um I don't know. I, I I mean, I think it's just because one. I think the actress is Trisha Helfer and I think her performance is so layered and nuanced that I really really enjoyed. Um I thought that the way that they wrote in those early Cylons in the the reimagined Battlestar Galactica was just really interesting when they were like ooh like the Cylons have a plan at the beginning of ep- every episode they were like these are the Cylons and they have a plan and before you realize that the writers didn't have a plan for them and that there was no plan all along I thought She was just a really interesting uh, character that, similar to what we were talking to Samet Basu about, was just this idea of personhood and humanity and how she was simultaneously done with this idea of humanness, but very much attached to this idea of personhood. And I thought that there was just some really interesting complex ideas there in those early, early seasons.
2: Interesting. I went with a less serious uh, character went with uh Marvin from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. Um I just think the idea of like this depressed uh nihilistic kind of robot is is very interesting to me. Um I think that uh Alan Rickman being the voice for Marvin in the movie was just perfect casting. Um so I really enjoyed that and I I think that Martha Wells owes uh Marvin a little bit of a the credit for being there and doing the depressed robot thing first. Um yeah. in a much different way. Uh but yeah, I, I I really enjoy Marvin.
0: Yeah. Um I know that this wasn't the point of the question, but I will say probably one of my probably most controversial opinions is that I'm not the biggest fan of Murderbot. Um yeah. I haven't I think- read it yet. Okay. I think I think it was fun for one novella, but I think the shtick got a little old um uh, really, really quickly. So I'm sorry to everybody who who's a huge murder bot fan out there. But I've read like I read like the first five novellas and the the actual like novel. Um uh, so I put in my time. Like I'm saying this from like a position of knowing what I'm talking about. Uh but yeah, I just never really got it to the same degree that everyone else
2: did. Um uh, yeah. Do Do you hear that? It's the sound of you being canceled, right? I know. Now. I'm sorry. Just for that opinion.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. I mean, I did enjoy the first one. It just I felt like the it never really progressed beyond that, like that one little like aha ha like
2: sad depressed murder robot, you know. Uh, but yeah, that's oh. my opinion. Um, we'll put up the address where you can send your complaint letters later. Yeah. <laughs> Um, All right. I think this next one's you, yeah.
0: Yeah. So for our last question, um, what's a book that you could talk about for hours?
2: So again, I went outside of genre. One, because one of the first books that popped up to mind is the book that we did talk about for hours, just like two episodes ago, which was Jade City, Jade War, and Jade Legacy. Um, So I went outside of genre a little bit. The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde is one of my favorite novels. I've actually, when I was uh, working in higher ed, I taught a freshman seminar using that book. And oddly enough, I think there's some more interesting nuance to be had now that you've had kind of uh, some calls for uh, like, the end of the me too like the, the me too kind of caught juno diaz in it a little bit with some of his not not like criminal behavior but like creepy behavior towards some women and so i think that there's some interesting reading about he kind of writes this from what he was claiming was a f- feminist perspective and now given that light i think there's some interesting conversation that can be had about the characters Within the brief, wonders life of Oscar Wilde, given the idea that Juno Diaz might not be such a uh, a safe man to be around, and so there's some interesting layers upon that. Um, but I think there's just it's just such a meaty book that it can be digested in a lot of different ways. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: for this one, I just. I, I picked uh, whatever was the last book that I read because any book pre- prior to that, I could not talk to you about for hours because I don't remember enough. <laughs> so literally, if I finish a book, I, I could go off for hours about any book. Um, so I'll find something, whether I liked it, whether I didn't like it. But I like, even like, when we're about to interview an author, if I don't write the interview questions as soon as I close that book, I don't remember anything. I don't remember character names. I remember like the vibes and the feelings that I get from it, but I don't really remember anything else,
2: you know? Except if any of those authors are listening right now, we 100% remember everything about your book and we loved it.
0: I remember the feelings of how much it brought me joy. (laughs) I don't remember any plot
2: points from it
0: but I remember the feelings that it gave me and the fuzzies and the you know everything like that.
2: So there's no book that you feel like you like have uh, in in the in the reservoir.
0: Mm, I mean that's the problem is that I I mean like other than the like the ones that are like really long series that have like had like big prominence. So obviously I could talk to hours about like of the Otherlings*, Song of Ice and Fire, things like that. But it would be really hard for me to pick any individual book and talk about it outside of just wow, I remember like I really this had good themes, but I don't remember really anything that happened in it. Okay. Um, that's one of my reading toxic traits is yeah, it's like one in one out the other like, that's why I write summaries. Uh, after I finish books so that the next time I pick up the sequel I remember literally anything Uh, but yeah it's I could I mean I feel like I can I feel like I could bullshit my way through like an hour discussion of
2: any book but it wouldn't be good Well, you're in academia of course you could
0: oh yeah yeah there are times (laughs) where I like stand up to like lecture about something and I like don't even know what I'm lecturing on or like I get up to give a talk and I wrote it on the plane you know do you
2: think any of your students are watching this right now?
0: Probably not. I hope not. But they also know. They also know that I say the most out-of-pocket shit on the planet. So, like, <laughs> they they
2: would be used to it, and they would not be surprised by this. Well, that's fair. Yeah. Um, I think with that, we are wrapping up this episode of the Dragonfire podcast. Thank you all so much for listening, especially through our kind of ranting, nihilistic Dragonfire segment at the end. <laughs> Um, we had a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for being a part of this. As always, um, we we release our episodes every other Tuesday. Um, in the liner notes of this episode, we will have uh, links to uh, our, our socials, links to uh, our, our guests, uh, Samet Basu, uh, Basu who, uh, whose book is coming out again October 3rd uh so we'll have all that good information in in the uh the details below thank you so much and we're looking forward to speaking with you next time yes. hey, everyone